This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Murder in the Family, where I share stories of family members who murdered together. So far, I've told you about murderous brothers, serial killer sisters, and now I'll share a story about a mother and son team. Before I begin, I want to give you a bit of detail about researching this kind of case. This is a story that begins way back when the mother in this case was a little girl, and there are many sources of information about her life and crimes. What you need to know is that this woman is a consummate con artist, first and foremost. Because a con artist's most important skill is to be a talented liar, it can be difficult, to say the least, to determine what is fact and what is fiction when it comes to the details of their lives. I came across some accounts that, coming from first-hand sources, seem to be more trustworthy. I also found many, many more sources that were questionable. I believe that several of these sources cite much of what the perpetrator has been quoted as saying or sharing with others. So I've decided to take most of my information from first-hand sources, such as her own sibling who can speak to her upbringing and her biological child for later details of her life, as well as police and court records. I hope that I will give you a mostly factual and correct account by doing so. In any case, I hope you find this case as intriguing as I did. This is Chapter 3 of Murder in the Family, the case of Sante and Kenneth Kimes. June 14, 1998. A young man arrived at 20 East 65th Street, Manhattan. The Limestone Beaux Arts Building was a 6,000-square-foot luxury townhouse located less than a block from Central Park and a short stroll from New York's famed Plaza Hotel. The mansion, valued at over $7 million at that time, boasted a rooftop garden as well as a ballroom modeled after the music room of the Petit Trianon at Versailles. The owner, Irene Silverman, an ex-ballerina, had owned the building since the mid-1940s and later had turned it into one of the swankiest bed-and-breakfast rentals in the world. She didn't need the money. The rental rate of each apartment inside the home was $6,000, but she enjoyed the company. Irene was a bit eccentric. Some would describe her as a firecracker. She was in her 80s and loved to entertain and throw parties. Some of her guests who were regulars included authors, artists, and celebrities like Daniel Day-Lewis and Shaka Khan. The guests she liked and found interesting, she would invite to share gourmet dinners prepared by her chef in her beautiful dining room. I can only imagine what fun and lively conversations must have been shared between the elderly socialite and her esteemed guests. The young man who rang the bell one day in June introduced himself as Manny Guerin. He was well-mannered, dressed in a business suit, and said he had come to inquire about renting one of her apartments. He was in the city working on some business ventures. His assistant, a woman named Eva Guerrero, had called to inquire about a rental a few weeks earlier. He also told her that he'd been referred to her by a mutual friend, a man named Paul Vacari. Vacari was the son of Silverman's longtime butcher, Rudy. She invited him in and asked for references and identification, as she did of all her prospective tenants. However, Garen said he'd just gotten into town and didn't have these items on hand at the moment. However, he did have $6,000 in cash, which he produced. While Irene would not normally make an exception, the man was very polite and charming, 
and they did have a mutual acquaintance. He also promised to produce the needed items as soon as his belongings arrived in the next day or two. Finally, a cash payment might have been the final enticement, since it would save on taxes. So Irene made an exception and showed the young man to his quarters, apartment 1B, located near the room she used as her office and sometimes her bedroom. Irene Silverman had lived a long and colorful life, but she could not know that she had never encountered anyone like her new tenant before. Irene Silverman was born Irina Zambelli in New Orleans in 1916. She liked to tell people that she was born over a brothel. She was the daughter of an Italian fishmonger and a Greek seamstress. Her father was related to the famous ballet dancer Carlotta Zambelli. He was proud of this and believed that his daughter as well could become a celebrated ballerina. Her family sacrificed to give her ballet lessons several times a week when she was just a little girl. In 1932, the Great Depression left the family penniless, and her father, unable to provide for them, deserted his family. Her mother took Irina and moved to New York, still with the hope that she could become a prima ballerina. They were able to secure lessons for Irina with a well-known choreographer. To pay for these lessons, her mother sewed costumes for the ballet company at night and worked as a seamstress in New York's garment district by day. Irina was a good dancer, even talented, but she stood at only about five foot tall and weighed only 98 pounds. She was considered too small to be offered a place with the major dance company. So in 1932, needing to bring in an income, she took a spot with the ballet corps at Radio City Music Hall. In those days, an admission ticket cost 75 cents, and for that, you were entertained by a full-length movie, a dance number by the Rockettes, and a ballet as well. Irina danced in these shows four times a day, seven days a week, and was paid $36 weekly. It was a brutal schedule and taxing on her body. Her feet often bled, and she would sometimes walk home barefoot due to the pain of wearing shoes. But she was young and living in one of the most exciting cities in the world. She was lively and liked to have fun, and others remember the tiny dancer as someone who liked to play practical jokes on her fellow dancers. Irene, as she was now called, had been dancing with Radio City for eight years when she met a man a decade older than herself. His name was Samuel Silverman, and he was a real estate developer who'd already begun to build his fortune. They married in 1941, and after World War II, he began to expand his real estate holdings to other countries. The Silvermans had homes in Hawaii, Athens, Paris, and New York, purchasing the five-story townhouse on East 65th Street as their main residence. Irene's mother, who'd sacrificed so much to bring her daughter to the city to become a dancer, moved in with the couple and lived with them for the rest of her life. The Silvermans had been married over 30 years when, sadly, Samuel died in 1973 of cancer. Irene's mother, Mary, outlived Irene's husband by a few years, and then she found herself living alone for the first time in her life. It was at this time that she decided to divide the mansion into suites and offer them for rent, for extra income, as well as to have others around for company. There was still a lot of life left in Irene, and she even began taking classes at nearby Columbia University. She enjoyed learning and being around young people, and they thought she was just wonderful, feisty and fun. It didn't hurt that she would sometimes bring a bottle of champagne in her purse to share after class. She loved dogs and bred prized boxers, that she sold for upwards of $500 per puppy. But when she saw how badly one little girl wanted one, 
She gave her one in exchange for the small amount she had in her piggy bank. Irene had company almost every day and invited a friend to dinner almost every night. It was a spry and lively 82-year-old that rented an apartment in the summer of 1998 to a man calling himself Manny Guerin, a man whose name was actually Kenneth Kimes Jr. Only a few weeks after allowing Kimes to move into her home, Irene would go missing, and Kenneth Kimes and his mother Sante, both wanted fugitives, would be suspected of her disappearance. Sante Kimes, a woman who by 1998 had no less than 20 aliases, was born on a farm outside of Oklahoma City on July 24, 1934. She was the third of four children born to Prama and Mary Singer. Prama and Mary were an unlikely couple. He, now a farmer from East India, and she, a Dutch girl whose father was a Presbyterian minister. Prama met Mary Van Horn in the 1920s at a state fair. He'd immigrated from India in 1919 and had moved around the country supporting himself in a variety of ways. When he met Mary, he was performing in a traveling magic show. He was tall and handsome, with dark hair, olive skin, and coal-black eyes. They were instantly attracted to each other, and within two weeks they were married. Her father didn't approve of the union, so Mary and her husband moved to Oklahoma, where they bought their farm. They had four children in quick succession. The oldest was their only son, named Karam. Their oldest daughter was named Prammy, the middle daughter, Sante, and the youngest, Ritha. At this point in the story, alternate versions come into play. In the first version, often recited about Sante's life, and which she, I suspect, had a hand in the creation of, her father deserts the family, and her mother becomes a prostitute and neglects her children. However, I was able to find an interview with Sante's younger sister, Ritha, who shares the following account. While she and Sante were still young girls, her brother and sister were a bit older, almost teens, her father died of heart disease. Mary was left with four children to raise alone. She began cleaning other people's homes and taking in laundry in order to put food on the table. Because she worked long hours, the two older children were charged with caring for the two younger, Sante and Ritha. Ritha remembers that her brother Karam and her sister Sante had what she called an inappropriate relationship. Sante was extremely attached to her big brother. She would often sit on his lap and lovingly stroke his hands and face. Ritha said she would sometimes see Karam touching Sante inappropriately during these times. Her sister says Sante always needed extra attention and affection from her brother. It's possible she was starved for male attention after the loss of her father, but it is unknown whether she had a close relationship with him before his death. Ritha also describes her brother as having a violent temper. He would become angry at his mother and would hit her. Mary was passive and fearful of life after being left a widow. She was unable to discipline her son. His bad behavior culminated in an incident where he knocked his mother down, stole money from her, and even took her wedding ring before running away. His sisters did not see him again. Soon after, their older sister Prami also ran away, presumably to get married. Ritha remembers that she and Sante were left alone together while their mother was working. Sante, now the oldest child at home, was charged with looking after her younger sister. Ritha says that Sante took advantage of this, to be cruel and abusive to her. Sante had a predilection for hurting living things, Ritha says. She would bully and hurt younger children. 
This may have been partially as a result of being shunned by her classmates. The other children in town would not play with the singer children because they were Indian. But Sante also liked to hurt animals. The family had farm animals, including goats, and Sante enjoyed sticking pins into their hindquarters when they were tied up and couldn't get away. Ritha says that Sante would laugh whenever she caused the poor animals pain. Ritha says her most vivid memory is of seeing her sister smiling as she hurt her. Sante would take matches and force Ritha to hold her fingers over the flame until they began to burn. She would play other games with her sister designed to cause her pain. In Sante's version, she was left to fend on her own by her mother, who had become a prostitute. But records show that in the 1940s, authorities in Oklahoma decided that Mary Singer's girls were being neglected and took them away from her, placing them in a home for girls. Ritha says her mother was devastated and created a plan to see them. Once she had them, she left the state with her daughters, moving to California. Once in California, Mary found work in a factory in Los Angeles. The owner felt sorry for the single mother and allowed them to live rent-free in an apartment over the shop. However, money was still tight, and Mary had to work many hours. At the same time, she was having increasing problems with Sante. Sante had begun having out-of-control rages whenever she was unhappy, didn't get what she wanted, or her mother wouldn't allow her to do what she pleased. Her rages became more frequent in California, Ritha says, up to two or three times per day. Mary was unable to control her, and Ritha was afraid of her. Sante ran wild in their new city. She began hanging out at a soda counter in Studio City. There she met the owners, who also owned a movie theater on the block. They allowed the pretty dark-haired girl to stay in the theater and watch movies for free. She told them a story about her mother being too busy for her, and their hearts went out to the poor neglected child. The couple had a brother and sister-in-law living in Nevada, who were unable to have children of their own. Soon after meeting the little girl, they decided that perhaps they could talk Sante's mother into allowing their relatives to adopt her. They approached Mary, who by this time was at her wit's end trying to keep Sante in line and provide for her two children. When she heard their proposal, she agreed. Ritha remembers that the day Sante left for her new home in Nevada, she and her mother danced. In 1947, Sante, now 12 years old, moved to Carson City, the capital of Nevada, to live with Colonel Edwin Chambers and his wife Mary. The Chambers also had a seven-year-old adopted son named Howard. When she arrived in Nevada, Sante began seventh grade. She first went by Sante Singers, but when the children made fun of her, she began calling herself Sandy Singer. Soon after she was formally adopted by the Chambers, she changed her name to Sandra Chambers but she was always called Sandy. She became best friends with a girl named Ruth Tom. Ruth and the other children remember Sandy's mean streak as well. One man later in life recalled that Sandy liked to hurt him when he was a little boy, making him take off his shoes and socks and placing a lighted match between his toes until it burned down to his skin. She called it giving him a hot foot. He remembers that Sandy would become very animated and laugh during this game, even while he cried his eyes out. In 1948, at age 14, Sandy entered Carson High School. She did her best to fit in and was given the best of everything by her parents. She wore the most fashionable clothes of the day and was given horseback riding lessons and went on ski vacations to Lake Tahoe with her family. She stood out from her peers 
and that they believed her more worldly and sophisticated. She was also beautiful, with long dark hair, dark eyes, and a big beautiful smile. She had taken to lightening her olive complexion with pressed powder in order to look more like her classmates. She was very bright and a good student. She wrote for the school newspaper, joined the Spanish club, and was in several high school plays, and even ran for student council twice. She lost both times. But she also stood out because she was somewhat aggressive and bossy. She would find a way to get what she wanted and would do whatever she wanted without considering the consequence to others. In one often shared incident, Sandy managed to get two cheerleading uniforms, one for her and one for her ever-present sidekick, Ruth. She and Ruth ran out on the court at halftime during a school basketball game and began leading cheers before the real cheerleaders could take the floor. If this was a more benign incident, it was still remembered as odd, and just like Sandy, to put herself in control and get what she wanted. And what she often wanted was attention. She was known as boy crazy and a big flirt. She attracted boys easily with her beauty, shapely figure, charm, and vivaciousness. Throughout high school, her most steady boyfriend was a boy named Edward Walker. Everyone liked Ed. He was a nice boy and even an Eagle Scout. There is one standout incident from Sandy's teen years. She was arrested for shoplifting when she was just 16 years old. She stole a lipstick from a department store. This was odd because Sandy had plenty of money and could buy all the lipsticks she wanted. No, it was not need that drove her to steal, it seems, but the excitement of getting something without paying for it. The charges were soon dropped. In 1952, Sandy graduated from high school. She told classmates she was planning to go to college to become a journalist, but instead, she and Ruth moved to California. They first took secretarial positions in a Sacramento firm, and then they moved to San Francisco to enroll in business school. Ruth said this was a fun time in their lives, just two single girls in the city enjoying their freedom. Sandy began dating a young man named Lee Powers, a college senior who had just joined the Army. After a year of dating, she told Lee she was pregnant. They married on May 9, 1956. After a few months, it was obvious that his bride had lied to him and was not pregnant. However, he never confronted her about this obvious ploy to get him to marry her. Within a year, Sandy was bored of being a housewife. The consensus is that her new husband could not provide her the lifestyle she required. In other words, he didn't make enough money. After one year of marriage, Sandy left him. She returned to Nevada where she began seeing her old high school flame, Ed Walker. On November 9, 1957, six months after her divorce from Powers, she married Walker. Ed Walker was now a general contractor building homes during the housing boom in Sacramento, California. They began to live a nice lifestyle. They had a new home, nice cars, and new furniture. But it soon became apparent that this was not enough for Sandy. In December 1960, one of the homes Ed was building caught fire and burned down. The Walkers collected fire insurance on the home. Soon enough, more of the homes Ed built began to burn down. Sante, she had now gone back to her original name, made sure she personally collected the insurance checks. Ed, of course, was unaware that his wife was responsible for the fires. He also didn't know that she had begun shoplifting as a hobby. Of course, as before, there was no need for Sante to steal. She could have bought most of the things she shoplifted, but it seems she enjoyed the thrill of getting away with something. I found a record of a list of charges against Sante throughout her life, and there is one charge of grand theft in Sacramento in 1961. 
either the charges were dropped or she paid a fine or did probation because there is no jail time mentioned. Because the charge was grand theft, she must have lifted some items of value. She especially enjoyed stealing jewelry and fur coats. On September 27, 1962, Sante had her first child, a son named Kent. She continued to set fires as well as steal. There are also reports that she started having affairs with some of her husband's wealthy business partners. By 1965, she had left her husband and headed to Southern California with her young son in tow. There are records of various charges under several aliases Sante was using, charges that included grand theft as well as auto theft. Sante walked into a Cadillac dealership in Norwalk, California, and talked the salesperson into allowing her to test drive one of the new cars. She drove the car off the lot and did not return. She kept the car for a month before she was finally pulled over by LAPD when they ran a check on the plates and it came back as stolen. What would become classic Sante attitude, when she was arrested, she merely explained that she had been given the car to test drive, and that is exactly what she was still doing, test driving it. Sante would never admit to doing anything illegal or wrong. So it would be interesting to know how she explained her arrest in 1966 in Beverly Hills for grand theft, or in 1968 in Riverside for the same charge. By 1969, she had moved to Palm Springs with the intent of landing a millionaire as her next husband. She would often tell her seven-year-old son, Kent, the importance of marrying rich. Never marry for love, she told him. Money's the only thing that matters. There are some reports that she began to work as a prostitute in Palm Springs. She was still committing petty crimes, including shoplifting high-ticket items, but now she employed her young son as a decoy. The cute kid was taught to distract salespeople in department stores as his mother stuffed her purse with valuables. At the same time, she began reinventing herself to attract a rich man. She wore big black wigs, dressed expensively, and wore lots of rings on her fingers to look the part of a well-to-do woman. Many people said she was a dead ringer for Elizabeth Taylor. Sante could always charm people when she needed, and she used this talent for a time to work as a lobbyist for a Southern California healthcare firm. The story goes that Sante read an article in Millionaire Magazine, which I'm assuming she subscribed to, about a self-made millionaire who was worth an estimated $20 million fortune. She set out to meet this man named Kenneth Kimes. In 1971, she got her chance and quickly charmed the older man. Within the year, she was living with him in one of his beachfront properties in Newport Beach. Kenneth Kimes had migrated to California from Oklahoma during the Great Depression. He, along with his parents and siblings, picked crops up and down the state as migrant farm workers. Although they barely got by, Kimes began putting away a little money at a time, already planning for the future. When World War II began, he enlisted, and during his time overseas, began building up more of his nest egg by trading guns for fish and other staples with the native people in the Aleutian Islands where he was stationed. He then resell these items to the mess hall. He also operated a small casino inside one of the huts. Any money he made, he sent home to add to his savings. When he returned home, he married his first wife, Charlotte, and had two children, a boy named Andrew and a girl, Linda. The United States economy after the war was booming, and seeing the expansion of the automobile industry, 
and the rapid building of more highways, the Kimeses saw the need for more motels and began building and operating them. Their cash cow became a motel they built in Anaheim, directly across the street from the new amusement park, Disneyland. They named the 100-room complex the Mecca Motel, and it was almost immediately completely booked. Charlotte filed for divorce in 1963, when she got tired of her husband's controlling attitude towards her. His mother lived with them in their mansion in Orange County, and when he was away on business, as he often was, made sure his mother went everywhere with his wife to report back to him where she went and who she was with. He also tightly controlled their finances, doling out only a small allowance to her at a time. And there were other problems. Money became his god, Charlotte would report, and he was a womanizer. She came to discover that he had a woman stashed near many of the motels he operated around the country. During the divorce, Ken made sure to get the best divorce attorney that money could buy. In this way, he was able to keep the bulk of his fortune. And it seems that Ken Kimes decided that he would make sure he kept his fortune. He had no plans to remarry and wanted to make sure that when he died, his fortune would go only to his two children. Sante would work hard to change these plans, you can be sure. When Sante and Ken met in 1971, it seems they both met their match. Both had come from hard scrabble upbringings, both were obsessed with material and financial wealth, and both took the attitude that business was business and sometimes it was dog-eat-dog. They believed that you had to play to win by whatever means necessary, and winner took all. While Ken's way may have employed cutthroat business dealings, it was not inherently illegal, as was Sante's. Through charm and wile, she would sway him over to her larcenous ways. Perhaps it brought a bit more excitement into his life. Who knows? Sante had found her perfect partner to help her in her next scam. The country was anticipating its bicentennial celebration in 1976. Big plans were already being made at the beginning of the decade to commemorate this anniversary. Sante and Kenneth came up with a way to capitalize on it. As early as 1972, they began putting plans into place for their money-making scheme, the sale of limited-edition bicentennial posters and bumper stickers. Without getting permission from the official Bicentennial Commission, she sent out a press release identifying Kenneth Kimes as the Honorary Bicentennial Ambassador of the United States. Somehow, with these false credentials, she was able to get him officially recognized to the commission, as well as on the program of the 1973 Rose Bowl Festival to speak on the subject of patriotism. Her coup de grace was forging the necessary documents to arrange an audience for herself and Ken with the First Lady Pat Nixon in 1973. With this sham a success, they then flew to Washington, D.C. in February 1974 to crash several Washington insider parties over one evening. They were able to con their way past the FBI and the Secret Service to get into a party at the president's guest residence, the Blair House. The party was hosted by Vice President Gerald Ford and his wife, and Sante and Ken are seen in a photo from that night being greeted by them. That night, they also attended parties at several embassies as well. The next day, society editors of Washington-area newspapers began receiving phone calls about the unknown couple. The woman seemed like a phony, many thought, telling some she was descended from Indian royalty and others that she was Native American. She then blew it before the night was over when she took the floor at one party to make a pitch for their poster business. It was soon discovered that the Kimeses were uninvited party crashers. One newspaper headline read, The Biggest Crash Since 1929. 
The jig was up when it was discovered that all their documentation and credentials were forged. No charges were pressed, but they were kicked out of D.C. for good, and their bicentennial business was kaput. By 1974, Sante had been with Kimes for three years, and he was no closer to marrying her. She also knew that his will left everything to his children from his first marriage, and she needed a plan to make sure she factored into his inheritance. So she decided to get pregnant. Their son, Kenneth Kimes Jr., was born on March 24, 1975. By this time, her older son, Kent. That had to get confusing. Ken Sr., Ken Jr., or Kenny, and Kent was 13 years old and beginning to balk at being his mother's accomplice. He often considered going to live with his father, but he loved his mother and was living a dream life with her. She could be mean and controlling, he'd later say, but she was a great mother in her way, doting on her children and giving them everything they could want. Birthday parties were huge events, and she was often a lot of fun to be around. This is the confusion of having a parent or partner like Sante. Kent would say about his mother, There was nobody easier to love or to hate. Kent also loved his little brother Kenny from the moment he came home from the hospital, and he didn't want to leave him. Soon after Kenny's birth, the family moved to Hawaii. Sante became obsessed with two things at that time. One was her son Kenny, and the other was cleanliness. Sante hired nannies to help care for Kenny and later tutors as well. She would not allow him to be around other children, saying they were inferior to her Kenny and a bad influence on her precious child, so she had him homeschooled. As a result, Kenny was not socialized with other children, and even when there was an opportunity to make friends, he didn't know how. His mother began hiring friends for Kenny, paying children in the neighborhood to come over and play with him, but only the children she approved of, of course. Children who were Kenny's sanctioned playmates remembered that he was not allowed to do anything his mother didn't approve of, She tightly controlled all his actions. Kenny never talked back to his mother and was completely dominated by Sante, they reported. He was also known to lie as easily as his mother did. He told outrageous stories without a bit of self-consciousness. He told some children that his family had problems with the mafia. When another saw his mother's numerous wigs, he told them that she had cancer and had lost all her hair to chemotherapy treatments. Sante also became a maniac about keeping a clean home. A la Mommy Dearest, she would sometimes force Kent to help her, giving him straight bleach or ammonia to use to clean the concrete in the backyard, for instance. Not only was it impossibly hard work, it was toxic as well. As Kent became a teen, he began refusing to do these tasks. Even when she became enraged and hit him, he would not give in to her crazy demands. That's when she began hiring maids. Sante had a number of maids, and when one neighbor inquired where she found so much help, Good help is so hard to find, you know. Sante laughed and commented, Oh, they're just my little slaves. The truth of this statement would not be revealed for some time yet. Sante continued to run financial scams, filing false claims about lost or stolen items to collect insurance money was one of her favorites. One time the claim was for a $30,000 Rolex watch, another for a $100,000 rug that never existed. Their insurance companies began to suspect fraud, and investigated these claims. A trial was held, and Kenneth's elderly sister, who was living with them at the time, was called to testify. She told the court that she had never seen a rug of that description in the home. 
Furious, Sante got back at her by locking her in her room and refusing to feed her. The poor woman was half starved to death before her relatives were able to come and free her. This would also begin a pattern of behavior for Sante. Those who didn't go along with her lies and scams became her sworn enemies, and she had no qualms about taking them out. In 1979, the Kimeses moved from Hawaii to Las Vegas. Kent, tired of moving and dealing with his mother's moods and his stepfather's drinking. Ken, he says, was a good man, but a full-blown alcoholic by this point. Stayed behind in Hawaii. In Las Vegas, Sante began acquiring more maids. One thing visitors noticed when they went to the Kimes' home were all the locks on the doors. Oddly, the locks were placed on the outside of the bedrooms. There was also a lock on the front door, and no one could leave the house unless Sante let them out with a key. They also noticed that Sante's help, mostly younger Hispanic women, were always in attendance, and while they wore uniforms, they had no shoes on their feet. Some chalked this up to the need of Sante to have all areas of the house clean, including the floors, but the real reason was much more ominous. Sante had a way, as good con artists do, of figuring out what a person most wanted or needed promising it to them, and then pulling a bait and switch before they knew it hit them. For her housekeepers or maids, as she referred to them, Sante promised to lift them out of their current situations and give them a better life. She would approach mostly Mexican women who lived in poverty or close to it. Almost all of them were illegally living and working in the U.S. She would promise them a good salary, a furnished room in her beautiful home, and even acted at first as a mother figure to the young girls. In the beginning, they would be treated nicely, but once she had them under her thumb and in her home, she would change. She began to demand more of them and soon would not let them leave the house, locking them in their rooms when they weren't working. And they were almost always working. They would work 12 to 14 hours a day for, as it turns out, no money and even very little food. The doors and windows in the home were locked and barred, and there was no escape for the women. She took their shoes away from them to make it harder for them to run away. The heat in Las Vegas is often brutal, and they would burn their feet if they tried to walk or run on the hot pavement. Kenny was now five years old, and Sante still did not allow him to play with other children. She told people that Kenny had tested in the genius range and could not mingle with other children. Kenny had mood swings and sometimes would rail against his mother and tell people he hated her. Other times, he seemed especially close with her and was constantly at her side, and seemed happy. People thought the family odd, and felt sorry for the little boy. In 1980, the Kimeses traveled to Washington, D.C., and stayed in the historic and expensive Mayflower Hotel. Sante and Ken Sr. went downstairs to drink in the lounge. While there, another guest by the name of Catherine Kenworthy draped her long mink coat over the back of her chair. Ken distracted the woman by starting a conversation with her, while Sante strolled over, removed the coat, slipped it on, and then put her own fur coat over it before walking away. Several other customers in the bar had already noticed Sante with her big black wig and her flashy clothes. They had remarked on her resemblance to Elizabeth Taylor, and clearly saw her steal the coat. At first, they couldn't believe what they were seeing, as the theft was so brazen and out in the open. When police were called, she was quickly identified by a witness as Fat Liz Taylor. Hotel staff told police that the woman had to be Sante Kimes, who was staying in the hotel with her husband and son. She was charged with the theft of the coat. It was found in her suite along with several other minks, 
each with the initials expertly cut out of the lining with the razor blade. There was also a men's top coat that had been reported stolen, and Ken was charged with the theft of this item. They posted $4,000 bail and left town. The authorities in D.C. kept trying to bring the Kimeses back for trial, but before each scheduled date, Sante would delay the trial by sending doctor's notes, stating that she was either too ill to attend or scheduled for surgery. Ken got off the hook first when the owner of the top coat died and the charges were dropped. In 1985, Sante's delays ceased to work and the trial was finally held. As the jury was out deliberating, Sante skipped town. The judge received word that Sante had been hit by a car and flew home for treatment before the verdict came in. This, of course, was a lie. She was convicted in her absence. Her lawyer then argued that because she was absent, her conviction was illegal. This plan actually worked, and Sante's conviction was reversed on technicality. However, her troubles were far from over. While she was away, several of her enslaved maids escaped and went to the authorities. They were more afraid of Sante finding them and bringing them back, or worse, than they were of being deported. In August 1985, police raided a residence that Sante and Ken were renting in La Jolla, California, and arrested and charged them with conspiracy to violate slavery laws. She was held without bail because of her history of skipping town during her trials. But before she could be tried in California, she feigned illness and got moved to a hospital room. She then escaped through a bathroom window. She called her old high school bestie, Ruth Tom, who was now Ruth Tannis, and said she was coming to visit her. Ruth said she didn't know who would get there first, her friend or the FBI. Three days later, Sante was arrested at a Las Vegas bar, the Elbow Room. The bartender, who she thought was her friend, called the feds when she arrived. This time, she would not skip out on her trial. And it was quite a trial. Sante, who invested a lot of energy trying to look like an upstanding, respectable woman of means, was trotted out before the public as a horrible woman who enslaved, tortured, and abused her hired help. Several brave women came forward to tell of their time as employees of the Kimeses, although I don't think you can actually be considered an employee if you don't get paid. One told how Sante would dismantle the phone and lock her in the house before leaving. Others told of being hit, slapped, and threatened with a gun for various transgressions, including burning hamburger buns, fainting, or not cleaning to Sante's satisfaction. Some told of being scalded with hot water by their employer or burned with a hot iron. It seems the little girl who once liked to torture her classmates had become a woman who took pleasure in hurting her servants. There was no reason that Sante couldn't employ paid help. They had plenty of money to do so. Again, she most likely enjoyed the power and control she had over these women and took pleasure in mistreating them. It was discovered that she had enslaved several women over many years, beginning in the 1970s. While Ken obviously had knowledge of what was going on in his own home, the victims pointed to Mrs. Kimes as the most abusive of the two. Ken Kimes was able to cut a deal with the FBI before trial and was given a three-year suspended sentence and a $70,000 fine. He was also ordered to get treatment for his alcoholism. Sante did not fare so well. She was found guilty and given a sentence of five years in a federal correctional facility. When Sante was sent away to prison, Kenny was 11 years old. He would tell friends that these were the happiest years of his life. Together, he and his father lived a normal life for once, and he was encouraged to have friends. He attended public school for the first time, and he thrived. 
His father cut back on his work schedule and traveled less to spend more time with Kenny. The boy's friends at that time said that it was clear that Big Ken loved his son and was a great dad to him. But everything changed in 1989 when Sante was paroled after serving only three years of her five-year sentence. She returned and tried to put everything back the way it had been before she'd gone away. For the very first time, Kenny fought her. His friends say that he told them he didn't want her to ever come home, and when she did, he became enraged, especially after she told him that they would be moving immediately. Devastated at the threat of losing everything, his home, his friends, and time alone with his dad, he lashed out and hit Sante. But it didn't matter. What Sante wanted, Sante got. And before long, Kenny was pulled out of school, and the family began traveling, not staying in any one place for very long. When they finally did return home, Sante had Kenny transferred to another school to complete high school, and he was not allowed to see the friends he'd previously made. A year after Sante was paroled in 1990, a $35 million civil lawsuit was brought against the Kimes by their Mexican maids. Sante became obsessed with the lawsuit and had boxes of documents scattered around her house to defend herself against the suit. They hired Doug Crawford as their attorney to fight the lawsuit. Sante, of course, still did not admit any wrongdoing against the maids. She was telling everyone that the women were just trying to get money from their wealthy employers by making false claims. She also told her attorney that the lawyer representing the maids, David Shooter, who had been a neighbor of the Kimeses in Hawaii, was connected with the Hawaiian Mafia. In October 1990, their attorney's law office was firebombed. The FBI investigated, but they weren't able to determine who was responsible. However, Crawford believes that Sante was behind the fire. Calling him the day after, she blamed Shooter and his mafia henchmen. Oh, honey, she purred, I just knew he would get you. A month earlier, the Kimes' Honolulu house burned down, for the second time. The first time it burned was in 1978, and they worked with insurance adjuster Elmer Holmgren and were able to collect on the insurance. Now he was again working for the Kimeses. Holmgren got drunk one night and told a friend that Sante had paid him to set the second fire. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms heard about this admission and leaned on Holmgren to become an informant in late 1990. They were trying to build a case against Ken and Sante Kimes. In February, Holmgren left on a trip to Costa Rica with Sante and Kenneth Kimes. He was never heard from again. When asked about him, Sante would say that Holmgren was a crook and ran off. She had no idea where. Sante was still trying to get paid for the Hawaii house fire, but the insurer, Chubb Corporation, denied her claim. In response, she sued. But beyond that, she began to stalk and threaten the company's CEO. She stalked him parking outside his home across the country in New Jersey and followed him to business meetings. She went so far as to threaten to harm his children. Sante was becoming an increasingly dangerous person to know or do business with. Kenny graduated high school in 1993 and began college at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He finally got a little distance and independence from his mother, although she would visit him on the campus whenever possible. But his escape didn't last long. In 1994, his father, Ken Sr., suddenly died from a massive heart attack. Sante didn't immediately tell Kenny about his father's death as he was away on spring break. She met him at the airport alone 
and when he asked where's Papa, she pulled out an urn with his father's ashes and said, right here. She then produced two airline tickets and put him immediately on an airplane to accompany her to Hawaii to scatter the ashes. Sante kept the news of Ken Sr.'s death a secret from his family, including his two eldest children. When anyone called to speak to Ken, she would say that he was away on business. When family members finally got tired of the runaround from Sante, they investigated and finally discovered that he had died. By some accounts, his own children did not learn of his death until two years after the fact. Of course, Sante was using that time to try and secure Kimes' fortune for herself. She had long used the name Kimes, but it's unlikely that Ken had ever married her. She once produced a marriage certificate, but those who saw it reported that it was a fake. Kenneth Kimes' will never had been amended, and his two children from his first marriage were still the legal beneficiaries of his entire estate. All of Kenneth's accounts were in his name alone, and Sante needed time to try and figure out a way to access his money. Kimes was reportedly worth $12 million at the time of his death. She first secured a social security number from another Kenneth Kimes and used that on the death certificate so that no one would be alerted to his passing. She then began to forge a signature on documents to withdraw funds from his accounts. She was able to have a deed transferred to herself from a $6 million property in California by using the name of two shell corporations so it wouldn't be tied back directly to her. She had moved to Santa Barbara and had Kenny move in with her. She was always around, his college friends said, and would criticize and berate him, especially about his girlfriends. Mother and son would have loud fights and arguments about her controlling ways. But it seems Sante was able to use the death of his father to make her son feel guilty. She was alone, she would cry, and Kenny would give in to her demands. Before his mother moved to Santa Barbara, Kenny had lived in a home with a young couple, the Katyas. They really liked Kenny and thought he was a nice boy, but Sante was another story. She was always around, they said, and they also witnessed the fights and arguments. Kenny became increasingly withdrawn and finally moved out to live with his mother nearby. Around this time, his behavior began to change and a complaint was filed against him by a female classmate. She reported that he'd gotten angry and began verbally abusing her by calling her a bitch, a slut, and a little whore. These were some of the same words he would use when arguing with his mother, witnesses said. In 1996, Kenny dropped out of college and began helping his mother in her scams. Perhaps she worked on him by telling him they would have nothing if she couldn't get her hands on his father's money. Or maybe he had been groomed for this since he was a little boy, who saw his mother steal, lie, and abuse the help. Whatever the reason, Kenny now jumped in with both feet, as his mother's partner in crime. Their first scam was a plan to smuggle Cuban cigars to sell on the internet. But that was small potatoes, and the scams, cons, and thefts would soon become bigger as time went on. Sante began traveling overseas to try and launch business ventures with the money she'd been able to steal thus far from Ken's estate. She told a family friend that she had lost $3 million in a Hong Kong business deal. She'd also traveled to the Bahamas, most likely to grab cash from offshore accounts Kenneth Kimes had at Gulf Union Bank in the Cayman Islands. In September of 1996, Sante traveled to Nassau, the Bahamas. On the night of September 5th, she dined with 55-year-old Syed Bilal Ahmed at the Androsian restaurant. Ahmed was an account investigator with Gulf Union Bank. After that night, Ahmed disappeared. 
His apartment in the Cayman Islands, as well as his hotel room in Nassau, had been cleared out before police were even called in to investigate his disappearance. Of course, Sante would be considered a suspect, being one of the last to be seen with Ahmed. It's believed that the bank investigator uncovered irregularities in Kaim's account and met her in Nassau to discuss the matter. What happened to him would not be known until almost a decade later. The Katyas, Kenny's former landlords, would only see him once more in the winter of 1997. He showed up with Sante unexpectedly to ask to purchase a gun from Ellen Katye. Ellen was a gun collector and had once been a highway patrol officer. He declined to sell them a weapon. He'd never trusted Sante and didn't know what Kenny's mother might be getting his old friend into, but he wanted no part of it. Believing Sante had spent the last couple of years brainwashing her son, he took Kenny aside and told him that he was afraid the next time he'd see him would be in prison. On January 31, 1998, Sante resorted to an old standby from her bag of tricks. The Las Vegas home burned down. The home's deed since 1992 had been in the name of one of Kenneth Kimes' lawyers, David Kasdan. At that time, they had been facing a $150,000 lawsuit against them and had asked Kasdan if they could transfer the deed in his name for the time being so their house could not be seized. He agreed and later asked them to transfer the deed out of his name. He believed they had done so. But in January 1998, Kasdan received mail from a Florida bank that contained a payment booklet. A $280,000 mortgage had been taken out on the Las Vegas home in his name. Sante had forged Kasdan's signature on the loan documents. After securing the loan, Sante had the deed to the house transferred from Kasdan to a person named Robert McCarran. A large fire insurance policy was then purchased on the home. Robert McCarran, it turns out, was a homeless man who Sante and Kenny had approached at a shelter. Offering him a place to live and some money, he went with them to the house, at which time, he reported later, they imprisoned him. He was beaten and threatened by them and was forced to pose as the home's owner. They would keep him under their control until they could collect on the fire insurance. Later, after he escaped them, he would tell LAPD that Sante and Kenny had set the fire. Meanwhile, Kasdan had a friend who was a private investigator and had him look into the identity theft. The investigator, Leslie Schifrin, found several forged documents, all notarized by the same person who turned out to be an associate of Sante Kimes. Kasdan then told Schifrin that he'd begun receiving threatening phone calls from Sante, who told him not to make a fuss about the forged documents or he could get hurt. Also during this time, Sante and Kenny moved into a house in Brentwood under the assumed names Manny and Sandy Guerrero. The mansion where they rented two rooms was a few miles from Kasdan's home. One room was shared by mother and son, and the second was taken by McCarran, who they introduced as their deaf valet. Their landlord, Danielle Lascaramuza, became immediately wary of the Guerreros, especially after she figured out that their valet was not deaf. They spied on her and tapped her phone, Scaramuza says. When another man, Sean Little, came to stay with them, she called the police to try and get her weird tenants evicted. Unfortunately, they said there was nothing they could do as no laws had been broken. It was later revealed that on March 13, 1998, Kenny, along with Sean Little, who was a drifter hired by Sante Kimes, arrived at Kasdan's gated home in Granada Hills. Kasdan let them in, at which point Kenny shot and killed him. Kenny and Little then cleaned up the evidence, 
placed Kasdan's body in the trunk of his Jaguar, and drove it to Los Angeles International Airport. His body would later be found in a dumpster near a car rental lot. Two weeks later, Sante and Kenny skipped town, first stopping in Las Vegas before driving to Louisiana and then on to Florida. They drove across country in a teal-green Lincoln town car that they had purchased with a bad check. This was another scam Sante had perfected. In February, she called an auto dealership in Cedar City, Utah, and said she wanted to buy a Lincoln town car with dark-tinted windows. The sales manager said he had one on the lot, and she agreed to purchase it sight unseen. Sante called this dealership because it was located near one of Kenneth Kimes' motels, and he'd done business with the sales manager for years. Sante sent a check for a little under $15,000 and asked that the car be delivered to the Beverly Wilshire Hotel in Los Angeles. Sometime after the car was delivered, the check naturally bounced. Sante apologized, saying she'd written it from the wrong account, an innocent mistake, and she said she'd send another. Three weeks later, the dealership still had not received a new check, but amazingly, Sante called to ask them to send another car as she'd found that the trunk of the one she'd bought leaked. The nerve. Angry now, the sales manager called the Cedar City Police, and they began an investigation. It was during their time in Florida that Sante would hear about the rich, eccentric widow, Irene Silverman, who lived in a luxury mansion in New York. She would then hatch a plan that would be both Silverman's and the Kimes's undoing. When Kenny Kimes, a.k.a. Manny Guerin, showed up at Irene Silverman's door on June 14th, she at first thought him a nice young businessman. However, a couple of days later, she met his assistant, Eva Guerrero. She didn't like Ms. Guerrero. She was loudmouth, she thought, somewhat low class, although she tried to act otherwise. Silverman wasn't fooled. She'd come from poverty and had married into wealth. She'd ran in both circles, and she could tell a phony when she met one. There were other things she found suspicious. She had a security camera positioned in the home's entryway. Whenever Guerin or Guerrero entered the home, they turned their faces away from it, as if trying not to be captured on camera. Also, her tenant still had not provided her with the necessary identification he'd promised and avoided her when she tried to ask about it. Finally, he would not allow her housekeepers to enter his apartment, something that was unheard of, and Irene didn't like it all. She wanted to make sure all her rooms were kept clean and damage-free, and without her housekeepers able to enter, she could not be sure. When he was out one day, she finally told the housekeeper to use her passkey to enter. She was appalled to find out that the lock had been changed. Garen had been living in the home for one week when Silverman asked him to leave. When he did not, she cut off phone service to the apartment and told her business manager, Jeff Feig, to begin eviction proceedings. She did not call the police, preferring to handle the matter herself. Meanwhile, Sante was putting together all the pieces of her latest scam. In May, before they'd even left Florida, she'd called a title insurance company under an assumed name and asked them about the terms of the deed to 20 East 65th Street, Silverman's $7 million townhouse. On June 17th, just days after moving into the home, she called another title company to get a copy of the deed. She received this, paying for it with cash, on June 24th. She requested the forms needed for a title transfer. Now she needed to get Irene Silverman's social security number. She first tried to trick her into divulging it, 
by calling Silverman and telling her she'd won an all-expenses-paid trip to Las Vegas, but she needed to provide her Social Security number to receive the prize. Silverman refused to give it to her. Ridiculous, like a wealthy woman would need a cheap-ass trip to Las Vegas. Next, Sante tried to get the number from Silverman's accountant by telling him she was a prospective tenant, considering a long-term lease of the townhouse, but needed the owner's Social Security number to do a background check. He also declined. There are reports that Sante and Kenny were spying on Mrs. Silverman, like they had their former landlord in Brentwood, by tapping her phones, possibly to find out information like her accountant's phone number, and placing spy cameras around the home to track her movements. Still unable to get the Social Security number, Sante moved on to her next task. She began looking for a notary public to certify the property deed transfer. They met one at the Hotel Plaza Athene, but he refused to notarize documents that had not been signed in his presence. On July 2nd, Kenny met another notary and brought him to the townhouse. This time, Sante was there impersonating Silverman in a wig and dark glasses. She forged the documents with Silverman's signature in his presence, and the deed was then notarized. It's believed that Sante planned to borrow against the $7 million value of the home. Just how she expected to get away with this, no one is quite sure. Saturday, July 5th, was the middle of the long holiday weekend. There was a smaller staff on duty at Silverman's townhouse that Friday. She had let most of her employees have the day off to enjoy the Independence Day festivities. Silverman had entertained the night before, having a few guests for dinner, as she often did. During the evening, she complained about her difficult tenants and told her guests that she was working to have them evicted. They asked her if she was safe and told her that maybe they should stay, or better yet, she could come and stay at their home, but she declined. Irene Silverman was not a person to scare easily, and she assured her friends that she would be fine. She had her ever-present companion, her boxer dog, by her side. Her guests left around 12.30 a.m., At 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, the only person on duty that day, one of Silverman's housekeepers, saw her outside of her office wearing her robe and slippers. Silverman asked her to walk her dog around the roof garden and then sent her out to do some errands. When the housekeeper returned that afternoon, Silverman was gone. Not long afterwards, the housekeeper grew concerned and called Jeff Feig, who then called the police. There was no sign of a struggle in the house but the staff also realized that Manny Guerin, the difficult tenant, had cleared out. It would be two days before they discovered that Manny Guerin was an alias used by 23-year-old Kenneth Kimes. On July 1st, as Sante Kimes was deep in the planning of the Silverman scam, she called an associate in Las Vegas named Stanley Patterson. She told Patterson to come out to New York because she had purchased a building that she wanted him to manage. Patterson had been hired by Sante over the years for a variety of tasks, including purchasing guns, one around the time of Kasdan's murder. However, Patterson had already been questioned about Sante Kimes by the LAPD and had become an informant since she and Kenny had left town. Now he reported her call to the police, who told him to go to New York. When he arrived on July 5th, Both NYPD officers and FBI agents met him at the airport. Patterson was to meet Sante and Kenny Kimes at the New York Hilton Hotel. At 7 p.m., he arrived, and moments later, Sante and Kenny were surrounded by officers and taken into custody. Sante had a black bag with her that she tried to tell officers was not hers, 
as she tried to hand it over to Patterson. Inside the bag was Irene Silverman's ID and $10,000 in cash. They were taken to FBI headquarters, where the authorities were still trying to untangle what was going on. You see, the reason they were being arrested was solely for the arrest warrant issued in Utah for the car bought with the bad check. Sante, not aware of this, began to try and spin a tale for the agents giving them another alias, Sandra Louise Walker, saying she was a friend of Silverman's. She's a ballerina, she said. She lets me hold her papers and documents sometimes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. In another room, Kenny, at first so terrified at being arrested, wet himself, now seemed to relax when he found out that they had been arrested for the stolen car. This is only about the car? He stupidly asked. If that's all this is about, I'm very happy. After I get back from Utah, I'll buy you a drink, he told the cops. However, once they found a number of suspicious items inside the stolen Lincoln, they had many more questions for them. Besides the cash and Silverman's ID, they also found Irene Silverman's passport, keys to her mansion, a 9mm pistol, as well as a 22 caliber Beretta, real estate transfer paperwork, an empty stun gun box, blank social security cards, handcuffs, extra license plates, syringes, walkie-talkies, and a notebook where someone had practiced Irene Silverman's signature over and over. It turns out that Sante Kimes had one habit that would come back to bite her. She made lists of everything. Investigators found no less than 17 notebooks full of lists planning every detail of several scams, including her plans for Silverman's property. Investigators began putting all the pieces together as soon as they found that Manny Guerin and Sandra Walker were in actuality Sante and Kenneth Kimes. They were suspects in a number of crimes, including the disappearance and presumed murder of Irene Silverman, the murder of David Kasdan, the disappearance and presumed murder of Syed Bilal Ahmed, arson, auto theft, forgery, and a host of other charges. Although Sante and Kenny were being questioned in separate interrogation rooms, mother and son kept shouting through the walls to each other, with Kenny asking his mother what he should do and what he should say, and Sante shouting back instructions. Neither admitted to anything. Their trial was set for February 2000. No trace of Irene Silverman was found. Later, it would be revealed that Sante had a saying she liked to repeat to her son. No body, no crime. But prosecutors in New York decided they had enough evidence to charge them with Silverman's murder anyway. Before the trial, Sante and Kenny did a number of interviews, believing, I imagine, that they could pull off one last con. Sante set out to convince the public that she was just an innocent old lady, she was now 66 years old, who was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. In one call to the magazine Vanity Fair, she claimed they were being framed by New York's district attorney's office. She said that witnesses had been bribed to point to them, who were only tenants in Silverman's home, nothing more. She also went on to say that Irene Silverman was, for years, running a brothel, and that NYPD apparently wanted her dead and had to pin it on someone. None of it made any sense. She also reported that her son had been beaten up in Rikers Island, which was true, but she insisted it was done on the orders of the DA to silence Kenny. Then Sante and Kenny sat for a televised interview with the news program 60 Minutes. Sante had let her hair go gray, and was wearing conservative clothes and big granny glasses. Kenneth Kimes wore a suit and tie, 
and often flashed a thousand-watt smile like he was running for the Senate. She wanted to come off as a gentle old lady who had never heard a fly. But the interview just came off odd, to say the least. Sante and Kenny sat side by side holding hands, touching each other and leaning close together. Most viewers remarked that mother and son look more like boyfriend and girlfriend or husband and wife. At one point, asked to describe his mother, Kenny looks at her lovingly and says, She's a beautiful person, spiritually, intellectually, and physically, grabbing her hand at which Sante blushes and grasps both of his hands and hers. The creep factor just goes up from there. In any case, the PR move didn't work. In May 2000, both Sante and Kenneth Kimes were found guilty of 58 and 60 different charges respectively, including the second-degree murder of Irene Silverman. They were each sentenced to 120 years in prison. At sentencing, when asked if she wanted to make a statement, Sante took the floor and began a diatribe about the unfairness of the trial, her innocence, and the sad tale of woe that was her life. After more than an hour, the judge had had enough. Mrs. Kimes, your performance is over, he said, cutting her off. But this crazy story is not over. They still had to face a trial in California for the murder of David Kasdan. While awaiting extradition, Kenny was being held in the Clinton Correctional Facility in New York. While there, he scheduled an interview with Court TV. On October 10, 2000, he was being interviewed in the prison's visiting room by Court TV producer and reporter Maria Zone. During a break in filming, Kimes got up to use the bathroom while Zone made a trip to the vending machines. On their way back, as they passed each other, Kimes suddenly grabbed Zone from behind and pushed a pen against her neck as a weapon. He pulled them both to the floor and threatened to stab her if his demands weren't met. He demanded that his mother not be extradited to California, because there they would both face the death penalty. He wanted to be assured that she would not face execution. Hostage negotiators were called, and they tried to talk him into letting Zone go. After almost four hours, they were able to distract him long enough to leap between him and Zone and wrestle him to the ground. She escaped with minor injuries, and he was given an additional punishment of eight months in solitary confinement. In 2001, they were both extradited to California. Perhaps because he had been away from his mother's influence and control for two years, he now decided he wanted to confess to police exactly what had happened to Irene Silverman. He was also seeking to reduce the eight months of solitary confinement he had been ordered to serve for the hostage-taking. He could help police to find her body, he offered. He'd killed her in the house by strangling her, he told them, and then wrapped her body in garbage bags, stuffed her in a duffel bag, and put it in the trunk of his car. He drove out to a building that was under construction in New Jersey and threw her body into a hole or ditch on the property. He didn't remember the name of the town, but knew that it was close to the water. He said the construction site was 30 to 40 minutes from the Holland Tunnel. A witness was found that remembered seeing Kimes' car in New Jersey on the day Silverman was reported missing. Investigators using this information searched for her body, but were unable to locate it. In 2004, when the murder trial in California began, it seems Kenny had enough time to grow a conscience. He decided to change his plea from not guilty to guilty in exchange for a life sentence without the possibility of parole instead of a possible death sentence. In return, he confessed in court to everything that he and his mother had done. 
Sante, now 69, continued to try and delay the trial by feigning illness until the judge spoke with prison doctors, who examined her and told him that there was nothing medically wrong with her. He then threatened if she continued to play sick, the trial would go on without her. She arrived in court most days in a wheelchair and wept and wailed as her son testified until the judge threatened to have her removed. Kenneth Kimes told the court, when his mother found out that Kasdan had alerted authorities that his ID was being used fraudulently, she told her son, we're going to have to kill him. She then explained how to go about it, and Kenny followed her instructions. They first picked up a drifter named Sean Little, who he said they wooed with nice food, cocktails, and fake friendliness to get him to agree to help. The next day, he and Little left to visit Kasdan at his home. He said Sante sent him off by saying, good luck, do a good job. When they got to the house, Kimes insisted that Kasdan let him in, telling him they needed to talk. Little waited outside. He said Kasdan was nervous, telling him not to worry, and assured him there was no problem regarding the loan situation. Kimes told Kasdan to get him a cup of coffee, and when they entered the kitchen and Kasdan had his back to him, he pulled out the gun and shot him in the back of the head. He called Little to come inside, where they cleaned up, and dragged Kasdan's body to the garage and placed it into the trunk of his car. Little drove the Jaguar while Kimes followed behind. At the airport, they put his body in a dumpster. Kimes said he felt like he'd completed a great duty for his mom and felt like celebrating, so he bought her a $100 bouquet of flowers. He then went on to confess to the murder of Syed Ahmed. This also was on his mother's orders, he said. Ahmed had uncovered Sante's theft of funds from the Cayman Island accounts, and he and Sante met to clear up the misunderstanding. Together, they drugged him, took him into a hotel room, and drowned him in the bathtub. They then dumped his body in the ocean. No charges were ever filed for Ahmed's murder. Finally, he gave the true and final details of the murder of Irene Silverman. He now admitted that together they had planned to fraudulently take ownership of Silverman's mansion. As the plan became more difficult to pull off than they thought, they plotted to kill her instead. He said it was a simple matter of grabbing Mrs. Silverman when no one was around and dragging her to her room. There his mother struck her with a stun gun and ordered him to strangle her. When she was dead, he put her body in the duffel bag to cart her off. Contrary to what he'd confessed to investigators three years earlier, he now said that he threw the body not in a construction site, but in a dumpster in Hoboken, New Jersey. Both Kenneth and Sante Kimes were sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for the murder of David Kasdan. Sante continued to insist she was innocent and that Kenny had falsely confessed to avoid the death penalty. Sante Kimes served her sentence at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women in New York. Her prison papers listed her release date as March 3, 2119. But even if she did live to the ripe old age of 185, she still would have a life sentence waiting for her in California. However, Sante Kimes died in prison in 2014 at the age of 79. She had been scheduled for a television interview with Inside Edition, for which she requested pink lipstick, Max Factor pancake makeup, did they still make that? Eyeliner, and a curling iron. It's important how I look in the interview, her note to Inside Edition's producers read. First impressions mean everything. Kenneth Kimes is serving his life sentence. 
His release date is scheduled for the year 2123. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Crazy story, right? Well, there are still a few more details about this case, including what happened to the money, that I will be sharing in a bonus series wrap-up episode for Patreon supporters. For as little as $2 a month, you can get those episodes and more by going to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime and becoming a patron. Thanks so much. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. I wish all of you in the U.S. a happy Thanksgiving. I'm grateful to all my listeners. I'll be back next week with the last episode in the series, Murder in the Family, and I hope you'll join me then. Until next time, be good to one another.